0: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, in these pandemic times, how can we better parent our children? According to the World Bank, almost 1.6 billion young people have missed out on some in-person schooling over the last year. But this week, most of Britain's children have finally gone back to in-person teaching. In America, President Joe Biden's self-imposed 100-day deadline for reopening the majority of classrooms by the end of April is fast approaching too. After those seemingly endless weeks of Zoom lessons, the end is in sight. I do not like homeschooling because I have no one to play with. I haven't been able to get as much help with schoolwork, and I also haven't been able to see my friends. It's so annoying and stupid and hard and annoying and stupid and hard. I love my family, but I'm with them always, every minute of every day, always. Even once the school gates have opened again, the impact of this year will stay with those children and their long-suffering parents. As a recent article in The Economist sister magazine, 1843, put it, I'm spending more time than ever with my children. No one is enjoying it. With three of my own at home, I am particularly glad to welcome today's guest. Philippa Perry is a parenting expert. She's been a psychotherapist for over 20 years and her latest book is The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and Your Children Will Be Glad That You Did. So what does Philippa reckon the fundamentals of good parenting are? And how can we overcome those tests of lockdown life and everything that follows? Philippa Perry, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello. You've been working as a psychotherapist now for over 20 years, and I wondered whether the kind of problems that people bring to you have changed much in that
1: time. No, they don't, and uh, we don't get a, a different type of problem. We might get a different presenting problem. People might be moaning about social media or something, but fundamentally people's problems come from their view of the world that was formed in their childhood. And a lot of that is unconscious. And that does not change. That is prehistoric and carries on going on.
0: And how would you say the pandemic and the situations we're all living in around the world, but in and out of lockdowns, more isolated from each other... It must play a huge role, but are you able to sort of adduce anything consistent from that, other than that human beings don't like to be (laughs) locked up, told they can't go out and separated from their friends and family, which seems pretty obvious? It's interesting,
1: isn't it? Because we all know why we're separated from our friends and family. We know why. We can look at the arguments and think, yes, that's very sensible that we don't spread the virus around, that we stay isolated. But unfortunately, our body speaks a different language. So you get what we call mind-body dissonance. So you know in your head why you aren't hugging your daughter, but it doesn't stop me feeling on some level rejected that it is happening, that I'm not getting that body-to-body communication that I'm used to. And even if you go for a walk in the park with a friend, one other person, but you you spend the time, your regulation two metres apart, you might come away feeling sort of flat and empty. Because when we're used to not only exchanging words and ideas and, and comfort with each other, we're used to having more of a sort of body-to-body connection. I don't know whether it's breathing together or just having a sort of non-verbal bodily dialogue, but we're missing those things at the moment. And unless we sort of find this narrative about the, the mind-body split, the dissonance, you know, it, you, can, it, you can get depressed and not know why. But I think a lot of people are feeling very down because this is missing and it's a human need to be amongst other people.
0: We reported a a large survey carried out at uh, University College London showing a steep drop in happiness since September in in the UK, a mood gyration, as we called it. And the thing that really interested me about this was that younger people who are in many ways at least risk of serious complications or death from COVID-19 came out of it as being a lot less happy than older people who are more at risk and who I might have thought, had you asked me when all this started last March, will be feeling the isolation more and need even more of of that support. Why would you think that demographic difference exists?
1: I'm 63, so this has been a 63rd of my life. If I was 14, it would be a 14th of my life. That's a lot longer So children are in it a lot longer than we are in terms of how they experience time. Secondly, if you're 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, about that age, uh, your job, evolutionary speaking, is to reject your family and find a new peer group This is why I hate you, mum, sort of happens round about in the teenage years, because it's really important for them to find a a peer group that is a sort of secondary family for them, because they need to find an identity away from the family. And this sort of biological need is being denied them. Now, we're all right. You know, me and my husband might be a bit bored at night because we're not going to any parties and, and not seeing anyone. But, you know, we are secure in our in our tribe away from our families now you know we have made our new family we've made our new tribe and so we haven't got this urgency to go and mix and like uh I live on a square and sometimes I hear uh teenagers sort of shrieking with delight in the park and I think hello someone's breaking the rules and although that might be dangerous for their elderly relations covid wise I just think I'm not surprised they can't bear it and they're breaking the law. I'm really not surprised. I heard a report of um, a really nice kind of good listening type mother and her her 13-year-old daughter came down the stairs with a pair of scissors and said, Mum, take these off me. I'm going to hurt myself because I am feeling so distraught and so much pain and I don't know why. And so I think it does help if we can make a narrative um, however accurate my theory is uh, there's nothing to prove it it's just a theory i like it personally but i think it's quite good if we can give children this narrative to make sense of why they are feeling so much worse than we are and we should certainly not shame them for you know oh look on the bright side don't do that you know because they are having a really rough time they 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 should be getting up to naughty pranks together. They should be bonding in a new group. And they're stuck with mum and dad, the two most annoying people in the world.
0: <laughs> I think I think I can vouch for that. I think that would be the view from the floor beneath where I'm interviewing you today. I'm fairly secure on on that knowledge. And let's talk about parenting because it's a subject of your new book, the book you wish your parents had read and your children will be glad that you did. Bold claim there, Philippa Perry. Um, You say, I wrote the book I wish I had read as a new parent. I
1: really wish my parents had read it. So what kind of parents did you have? I had really nice parents, uh, well-meaning, good parents uh, with financial stability. I am one of the lucky ones. However, My parents didn't like me being unhappy, right? So I'd get told off for being unhappy. My parents did not like me being angry. I was bad and wrong if I was angry. And this is just a small example of something that goes wrong. So what I wanted to let parents know is that you cannot argue with a child about what they feel. They feel what they feel. And sure we can help them find acceptable ways of expressing those feelings sort of like please don't break the windows when you're angry could you just say you're angry and then we can sort out what's going on rather than you um breaking everything now that's sort of a bit of a joyce Grenfell joke about it but i really mean it that we shouldn't tell children off for what they feel um Of course we want our child to be happy the whole time. And we might feel like if they're not, it's some reflection on us, but we must take what they say seriously, but not necessarily personally. Like for instance, uh, my father overheard me once saying that I wasn't having a particularly happy childhood and he went absolutely ballistic. I mean, looking back on it now, I can't blame, blame him. Like here was I growing up in peacetime and apparently not happy. Who did I think I was? What we need to do on those moments is not look to correct our child, but to connect with our child. So had he said, oh, I overheard you say you're not having a happy childhood. Could you tell me a bit more about that? And I might have said mm-hmm. something like, I really hate going to school. And if he'd said something like, oh, yeah, I hated school too, because he did, then we could have had a moment of mm-hmm. bonding rather than me feeling I've done something wrong but I'm not sure what and feeling like I can't confide in my parents because this is what happens if we don't accept our children where they are right now whatever that is then they won't have anyone to talk to when they need to talk to someone I mean you know let's have a round of applause for that mum who's kids said, I'm going to cut myself.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that strikes me as she obviously got to a very good place in a relationship for that to be the response. But you talk about people being... I I'm mean, being triggered as a parent by our children's behaviour, it's a useful term. I'm going to slightly challenge it, Philip, because I think it's also... I, I have a, a, a sort of a bit of a bugbear, which probably listeners to this, this show know about, which is slightly overly fashionable language, which for some reason always just gets on my nerve. I'm clearly an old soul. And something about being triggered always makes me think, well, the world triggers us all the time. It could just be exhaustion. It could be the stress and boredom of parenting small or larger children in the circumstances that you've described at the moment, for instance. Why is that necessarily to do with the past?
1: If you Mm. find the company of these people that you actually do love irksome, it's nine times out of ten, not every time, you're right about that, but nine times out of ten, it's because you were found to be boring you were found to be irksome and you don't want to be reminded of that so much in how we parent we pass on unknowingly what was done to us which is why i wrote this book because i don't think we really want to do that i don't think we want i think everybody loves their kid but i wanted to teach people how to like them too and that's what this book is about because if we, weren't, if we were not loved, like I was loved, but I don't think I was particularly liked a lot of the time,
0: mm.
1: you know, because mm. a three-year-old um, isn't necessarily the best company for a 40-year-old unless that 40-year-old does the transformative um, act of seeing the world through a three years, three-year-old's eyes and then they can learn from it and have a fantastic time. But if that wasn't done to you, it's very difficult to know how to do it, which is another reason why I wrote the book.
0: What I'd love to know is how scientific you think this is and how much you can make and test theories in psychoanalytic uh, practice and how much is it storytelling. You're a great storyteller. You know The audience will have got that. Your fan base uh, around your, your books and events knows that. So the stories, in a way, sort of become a truth, And people will say, yes, I, I do see that. You know, I can identify with that. That is a long way from being able to say, I can prove this.
1: I think after nearly three decades in practice and hearing about hundreds and hundreds of people's childhoods and that is true. Yeah, it's rooted in story. Hearing their stories and learning from them what their experiences have been. And not only that, I'm a, a psychotherapy supervisor. So I supervise other psychotherapists. So I hear all of their stories and all of their clients' stories. So I'm, I'm, my book is on a sort of a base of thousands of stories. Plus, where it is possible to test a theory scientifically, and a lot of psychotherapy research is qualitative research rather than quantitative research, but where you can do it quantitatively, such as we could with, uh, say, sleep training, then I do use scientific methods. If, if it's a what you reckon theory, I make the difference quite clear, I hope, in the mm-hmm. book. Um, I mean, sometimes, for instance, what we talked about at the top of this interview, we talked about mind-body dissonance. That is a theory based on experiential research. It's not a theory where you can get a test tube and put it over a Bunsen burner and see if it changes colour. But it's, it's something you can tell people that helps. And sometimes the closest we can get is a feeling of resonance with what is being told. If it resonates with them, that's great. If it doesn't, then maybe we need to dig deeper and see what's going on.
0: I mean, this must be, I should think, a bit of a double-edged sword for someone who is in your kind of of work. You have a, a daughter, she's grown up now. Do you find yourself thinking, I did this right with my daughter and I can
1: recommend this, I can put this across... What do you do with the more negative memories? Of course I made mistakes in that sometimes I didn't get her or I misattuned to her. You know, no one does anything perfectly. Any relationship isn't about perfection. It's about relating. And so, yeah, there was that time that I didn't believe that a cow knocked her over. But I found out later that it was true. And I was really sorry that I hadn't believed her. And what I was doing then was remembering how much I used to lie as a child to get attention because I wasn't getting the right sort of attention and assume that she was doing the same as me. No, she's a different person. She doesn't do that sort of thing. And And she was knocked over by a cow. She was, yeah. And I I was sorry that I got that wrong. I mean, I must have got masses wrong. But it's not about it's not about being a good mother or being a good dad or a bad dad. It's about relating. And when we make mistakes, we can go, my bad, I got that wrong. Like we do with our friends. They know if you're off. They'll know if you've got something wrong. So you must fess up to it so you don't mess with their instincts. So I think we should fess up a lot more as parents than than the generation before were in the habit of doing.
0: You wrote this book before the pandemic. Uh, family life has changed massively in, in that time, not least because, according to the, the World Bank, in twenty twenty temporary school closures kept nearly one point six billion pupils out of school with, with all the constraints, the loss of learning, but also it, it, for the, the most vulnerable children, the risks that that involves. So I wondered how you see the trade-offs as having worked out.
1: It's very difficult, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you know, granny has another 15 years of life and why should that be taken from her? And yet on the other hand, our uh, children are desperately lonely without their peers without the playground. I think the learning you can catch up on if you're interested and if you're curious, mm. you will catch up on that. But I do think there is a price to pay in terms of our children's development because they are they are taken away from their peers. I, I'm not going to judge it as it was the bad thing to do or it was the right thing to do. I I don't know um, whether it was, but we've done it. and there will be a price to pay for it. Whether that's a price worth paying or not, it's not up to me to say.
0: And is there a fundamental difference between a child-parent relationship and the child-teacher one? Because one thing I would say I can see uh, certainly my colleagues, and you, you won't be surprised to hear that uh, a lot of people actually on the Economist radio team and wider colleagues sort of fed into to the questions that I'm asking you. And I think there was a, a, a group of people, perhaps with younger children, who just feel that they have been pushed as parents into this role of teacher and that neither the child nor they are comfortable with that.
1: No, children for some reason don't like being taught by their parents and I think after a certain you know after primary school age um, the best a parent can do is facilitate learning rather than teach it what children Hmm. get to associate with at school is the structure of the day you know you line up you hang up your coat you know the rules of the classroom you, you know where you get your pencil from so all of that goes out of the window when you start learning from home teachers also know how different children learn like some children are naturally numerate and some have to visualize numbers but you'll probably present the work how you were taught to learn and it might not work so that will cause problems Um, children have lost their autonomy at the moment one way to help that better is to give them a restricted choice so you can say to them you can do your english works she or your maths quiz now you know give a command as a sort of choice it makes it a little bit easier the other thing is if you've got an eight-year-old and a four-year-old and they've got completely different learning and you you know you've got a full-time job and you're supposed to teach these children at the same time it's easier if you adapt the work to fit both kids so say it's English comprehension the eight-year-old will have to write some sentences about the story but the four-year-old can do a drawing so you sort of adapt it like that
0: and all of this is happening, as as a as a colleague uh, points out in a slightly plaintive question: How can parents get work done when children are in Zoom meetings demanding attention? Do we need to think about a timetable of work and parenting?
1: I think children should be part of work more. I think we should stop taking them to Disneyland and pretending the world is a is a, a beautiful land of childhood. It isn't. It's a land of work. I think it's nice for children to see their parents at work and to realise there's certain codes to follow when they are at work. And I, I just love it when there's a sort of professor or a doctor giving a really serious bit of news on the news and, you, and, and their three-year-old starts crawling all over them. I think it's beautiful. And I think their work is not, is, it doesn't take away from it. And we can all wait a minute, you know? We're not in such a hurry. We can wait a minute while the child pulls her hair and crawls all over her. I love it.
0: So we should change our mentality around it rather than changing or having a firm kind of division.
1: Um, I can remember, um, it's such a great memory for me, going to work with my father um, when I couldn't be looked after at home for some reason and going to a joiner's shop, you know, uh, lots of machinery, probably very health and safety, not good, um, and just feeling... That I absolutely loved it, and I was just, you know, I don't know, a six or seven, and I was just watching all these machines at work, and I, that was better than Disneyland. It really was, and I just think more of more kids should go to work.
0: I don't know. I'm going to ask the audience what they think about that. I think there'll be a split. I think some people will be completely cheering for you, and others will be like, ah, ah, no, I need my space. I to ask you about this idea of quality time. Uh, it's uh, something we had a piece about in our 1843 magazine uh, by a writer called Mark O'Connell. And, and he basically went into the origins of this idea that it's not how much time you spend with your children, but the quality of that time, which he says only arose as a phrase in the 1970s and didn't really take off till the 80s and 90s. What do you make of the idea of quality time, short
1: bursts of highly focused attention being better than just kind of mooching about? I think what makes a good childhood are not, you might call it quality time, the the trips to the funfair. They are the ongoing daily normal interactions. Mooching about, with each other, with respect for each other, is a jolly good thing. Mooching rather than focused
0: quality time, which I suppose is something a lot of busy parents do rely
1: on. The idea of focused quality time sounds like you focused on the kid. It smacks a little bit of being the, the doer and the done to to me rather than a mutually impactful relationship, which is what children need. Sure, um, partners and children will make bids for attention. If we manage to answer seven out of 10 of those bids, we'll have a good relationship. If we answer only three of 10 or less, we'll have a bad relationship, and that is done in a lab that they found that out. I'm not making that up. It's uh, from the Gottman Institute. And so if we decide to have a family, it's normal that the family are going to make bids for attention on us, be that from your partner or the children. And I think we need to be available for at least 7 out of 10 of those bids. 7 out of 10. This is my new benchmark. If we can take it for granted that when we need attention we get it then we don't have to keep testing that relationship out we don't Mm -hmm. have to keep trying it that's when we train children to be annoying when we don't give them enough attention and so they have to manipulate us to get it if they can always take it for granted that they're going to get the attention they need they don't become pains you tend to get back what you give You said in your book called How to Stay Sane,
0: which was one of our books of the year a few years ago, that sanity wasn't about normality. It was about a flexible position between rigidity and chaos. And that suggests that there are many ways in which one could describe or even sort of practice sanity. I mean, how do you feel
1: this period has been for your own sanity? Um, I think that sanity It's interesting, isn't it? There's the DSM, the Dialogical Statistical Manual, whatever it's called, DSM, that has got hundreds of ways of defining insanity, but they don't define sanity at all, which is what I attempted to do in that book. What is sanity? And I'll tell you what I think sanity is at the moment. It's having an appropriate response to what's going on. So I think it's okay to be sad. I think it's okay to be lonely. I think we don't have to be relentlessly cheerful in the current circumstances. And um, I think when we tip over into insanity is when we start to get neurotic and maybe fantasize about other people rather than checking out with them so it's when we start to get paranoid that everyone's against us or everyone's horrible or something like that that's insanity but sanity it's quite appropriate to feel sorrowful right now i mean thomas a Kempis in the 15th century a, a monk up in up in the north of england um, he didn't write books on how to be happy. He wrote books about how to be properly sorrowful. He thought sorrowful was the appropriate thing to be. And I think we need to take a, um, a leaf out of his book right now because um, it's appropriate to be sad when we're prevented from being with our loved ones.
0: Philippa Perry, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. And we'd love to know what you think. I've certainly had food for thought from what Philippa Perry was saying there. What have we learnt about our relationships with our children or with our parents during this tempestuous year? Perhaps you found your limits or that you were capable of feats of patience and creativity you didn't imagine, and all from the room next door with someone else banging on the ceiling. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or tweet us at Economist Radio. And if I might add a favour, do leave us a rating. Better still, a review on Apple Podcasts. Five star one makes our week. We learn from everything and it helps us immensely. The producers were Rosie Pye and Abasoye Oshundero. I'm Ann McElvoy signing off to go and help with the maths homework. Oh joy. In London, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.